Good morning, Sanctus Church. So glad that you can join us this morning. I hope you've been having a great summer. Well, I'd like to begin by uh, sharing a story that I've read, a little funny story. First of all, it's not theologically accurate, so please don't extrapolate any theological understanding from it. The story goes as a priest and a taxi driver both died and went to heaven. St. Peter was at the pearly gates waiting for them. He said, come with me. And St. Peter said to the taxi driver, and the taxi driver did as he was told, and he followed Peter all the way to this beautiful mansion. had everything you can imagine, a bowling alley to Olympic-sized pool. And the taxi driver said, oh my, my word, thank you so much. Next, St. Peter led a priest to this old shack with a bunk bed and a little old television set. He said, wait, Uh, the priest said, I think you've got it all mixed up, he said. Uh, shouldn't I be the one to get that massive mansion? After all, I was, I'm a priest and I went to church every day and I preach God's word. And St. Peter replied and said, yeah, that's true. But during your sermons, people slept. And when the taxi driver drove, everyone prayed. Now, you may, you may laugh at that and, and, and think. But, you know, when you look at the, the point of that story is, have you ever felt that life is unfair? The priest felt that he was gypped from something he deserved And the taxi driver got something he didn't expect. You know, we're currently living in a time where the world seems to be in turmoil. We're experiencing crisis of leadership and economic uncertainty, compromising of ethics and morality, governmental instability, and a church world trying to figure out what the future of the church will look like. And so with the convergence of all these challenges, many of us are looking around wondering, what is going on? We see good people going through unfair hardships and bad people using unethical means and methods to prosper without any consequence. It seems like life is unfair. Have you ever been in a place where something terrible was done to you and there was no justice to the perpetrator? Or maybe you read about a person who suffered horrific pain and the one that afflicted the pain got away with it and on top of it enjoyed a wonderful life. So how do you feel about it? Imagine if you were locked up in a North Korean prison cell, never to see your family for crimes you never committed, while the dictator enjoyed a life of luxury. Imagine watching your entire family being brutally maimed, killed, or even burned to death. Imagine someone cheating you from your life's earnings through a Ponzi scheme, only to leave you bankrupt while they enjoy comfort and luxury. How do you feel even thinking about these scenarios? Well, this morning, we want to dive into Psalm 73 for some answers. The Psalm, Psalm 73 is attributed to a man named Asaph, and he wrote a total of 12 Psalms. Now, while Job wondered why the righteous suffer, Asaph wondered why the unrighteous do not suffer. We at times wonder why bad things happen to good people, and at the same time, we have trouble understanding why good things seem to happen to bad people. James 1 helps us to deal with the first question, why good people have severe trials. And Psalm 73 helps us to deal with the second question, why wicked people often seem to enjoy a life to the full. All of us struggle to understand God's ways. Isaiah 53, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Many people have stepped away from God because of their inability to reconcile a good and loving God with the pain, suffering, and injustice in the world. Sooner or later, all of us will have a reason to question and ask God, why me, Lord? Every person who lives long enough will eventually encounter circumstances that are too difficult to explain theologically. 
cancer, sudden infant death syndrome, divorce, rape, loneliness, infertility, rejection. These and a million other sources of human suffering produce inevitable questions that will trouble us and leave us questioning. You know, throughout my ministry, I found that even though the happy or smiling faces we see on Sunday morning, everyone coming to church has a story behind them, including pain and suffering and heartache and many unanswered questions. Now, it's not that we are not happy, but no one gets a free ride in life without pain. At some point, we all face some disappointment, unexpected tragedy or trial. Now, there are four ways of dealing with suffering and trials. First, we can deny it. Pretend everything is good. Second, we can get angry and bitter, shaking our fists against God or others. Third, we can blame others for our problems and suffering. Or finally, we can accept it and learn from it. You know, Hebrews 11 is often called the chapter of faith on, about the heroes of faith. We read in this chapter how people with similar faith and trust in God had different outcomes. In Hebrews 11.34, we read of some men and women who God allowed them to escape the edge of the sword, and they were saved from death. Then just a few verses later in verse 37, it says that other men and women with just as much faith, it says, were killed with the sword. That is, God chose not to intervene, but instead allowed them to be taken from this world. So having more or less faith does not protect us from trials. But having faith and trust in God helps us to go through these trials. Now, there is no situation so chaotic that God cannot, from that situation, create something that is surpassingly good. He did it at creation, He did it at the cross, and He's doing it today. People often say, if God is good, He would. It speaks of His character of love, it's challenging His character. If God is good, then He would. Second is, if God could, He would, and that is challenging God's power and sovereignty. Critics claim that if God is good and all-powerful, as Christians often say, then he would act and stop evil, suffering, and pain. Well, this morning, this psalm, as we're going to look, is to provide us with hope, rest, and peace. But it's hard to experience that if inside of us we're burning with anger and resentment and vengeance to some wrong done to us by someone or even our feeling of God's inaction in our circumstance. You know, a study found that people who thought that they, that they were treated unfairly were more likely to suffer heart attack or chest pain. And so ASAP here was troubled. He was troubled so much that he had to learn about God's justice. And what he learned should be able to help us also. So before we begin, let's just pray. Father, as we look into your word, give us understanding. Even as ASAP went into your house and Lord, he understood your plan, and your purpose. Give us enlightenment, give us trust and faith as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin with Psalm 73, verse 1. Psalm 73 begins, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, Asaph had this belief. This was his intellectual commitment that he would believe and say that God, first, God is a good God. And second, he is good to those who love him. And have a pure heart. Asap lived with this theological view. That if you live righteously, God should bless you and everything in life should go well for you. And if things were not going well, then you must not have a pure heart or that you've done something wrong. Then in verses 2 and 3, he writes, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. 
For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, within the Jewish context or the ancient Near East cultures, there was this presumption that those who were good were materially blessed by the gods. So Asaph was confused when he saw the wicked prospering. People who rejected God were succeeding. He almost lost his faith in God. You know, Jesus actually came and turned that view upside down too in in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. The rich man went to a place of torment and the poor man, Lazarus, went to a place of rest and comfort after he died. Now this would have stunned the disciples who grew up in a context of seeing wealth as a sign of God's approval and poverty as a sign of God's disapproval. Do you and I still live with that mindset? A mindset that if we are succeeding financially, that means God is blessing us and that we are right with God. And if we're struggling financially, that means God is disproving us. Now, do you evaluate God's love for you based on your employment status or your health or how much money you have in the bank or your education? This is the tension that the psalmist is living with. He sees sin in the world and then he sees wicked people and their success. And so what does he do in response to that? He covets what they have. He responds to sin with sin. And that is the grave temptation for all of us. The question we must confront is this. How do we respond to the sin of others? He goes on to describe the prosperity of the wicked so that what he is seeing and envying. He says this. These people, in verse 3, were wealthy and living in luxury. He says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In verse 4, it says, the wicked were healthy. The psalmist says, their bodies are healthy and strong. They were untroubled. In verse 5, it says, they have no struggles. They're free from the common human burdens. They have no plague by, they're not plagued by human ills. The disobedient were violent and filled with pride. And the psalmist says, their pride was like a necklace. They clothed themselves with violence. In verse 7, they were callous in their hearts and they were filled with iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They were disrespectful in their speech. In verse 8, it says, they scoff and they speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. The ungodly were blasphemous. In verse 11, it says, they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? So to get an insight into Asaph's struggle, we notice two key words. In verse 3, The first word is prosperity. Asaph became privately obsessed with the prosperity of those who rejected God. The Hebrew word for prosperity is shalom, which means peace. So such that your life is fulfilled or tranquil or complete. Asaph looked at the lifestyles, the cars, the clothing, the houses they lived in, the company they had. And he thought to himself, they're getting everything God promised to his covenant people. I try to do everything right. And for what? They're blessed and not me. Asap had fallen into the trap of loving the world and the things that are in the world. Asap ceased being concerned about the sin of the successful and started focusing instead of the success of the sinful. And that led him to the second word which we read in verse 3 is envy. I was envious of the wicked when I saw their God, that God blessed lives. Envy is the tendency to compare ourselves with someone else in the way that leaves us feeling deprived. Envy means, I want what you have. Asap was eaten up with it. 
You know, our culture is uniquely designed to create comparison and dissatisfaction, comparing with our neighbor and feeling dissatisfied with our own lives. Social media, you know, has its benefits. It's a beneficial tool, but it also can be harmful to our mental health because it can cause us to live in a world of constant comparison and dissatisfaction. Just scroll through your Instagram and you can be easily caused to be disappointed with our own lives and longing for what our friends have. I'd like to share a little demonstration to you. Well, it's sponsored by Bubbly, or first of all, uh, not, not so. But as you can see here, I have three cans. Two of them are, empty, uh, two are open, and this can here is full and unopened. And these can represent different types of people. The unopened can can represent those who've not chosen to be filled with God's presence and be followers of Jesus. And the can that's full can represent someone that is full with the life of Christ, desiring to live with the fullness of God. Now, no particular preference of my own taste of which cans are what, but I'm just going to look and show you that these two cans, the green and the, the, the pink cans, they can do something unique that possibly this can can't do. So, for example, I can take this green can and tilt it on its side, and I can take the, this pink can and put it on its side, and it can do something like this. And the red can can look at both of these cans and say, wow, I wish I can do that, or I wish I had the ability, or I wish I had what they have. And as I try to... I'm not able to do it. And so this can... Though full and complete and whole, may feel devalued, may feel unable to do what someone else does, or feels that they don't have what someone else has. And there's this possibility that we can become envious of each other, envious of how they look, what they have, what they're able to do. And we have to be very careful with the trap of envy and comparison. But as you know, which of these are more valuable? Which one has its value and worth is found in the one that has It's completeness. It's fullness. It's full and complete. This can has much more than these two cans. Although they can do something unique, for you and I, who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have the life of Christ in us, who have been imprinted by the mark of God in our lives as children of God, that is something far more precious, far more valuable than what money can buy, what education can offer, more than any status, more than anything that we can accomplish in this world. There's something more powerful than you. Sure, you may not be able to have or do what everyone else in the world can do. But you and I, who are followers of Jesus, have something that is far more precious, is to be filled with Jesus, the life of Christ in us, to be marked as God's child. And I want you to know, and I want you to find that confidence and that hope today, that though you may feel envious, and though you may feel like you don't have what others have, God wants you to help you to find your security in Him. See, envy is so common that God made it the subject of one of his Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 17, it says, Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, or his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You see, we're told not to envy our neighbor's possessions, people, position, power, or place. And Asap had let envy in the door, and now it colored everything he saw. And this is why he perceived You try to honor God and stay humble and do good, and you'll have a rough, mediocre life. But if you live by lust and power and greed and deceit, you become a celebrity. Then Asap arrives at these questions in verse uh, 13. He said, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? 
Can you connect with those feelings? Have you ever had those feelings? Do you ever think to yourself, is it really worth serving God or coming to church or being part of a connect group or giving financially of my resources or praying or reading my Bible or even helping those in need? Am I wasting my time being a follower of Jesus? What's the point of being a Christian? Why do dictators, abusers, murderers, and cheaters get off easy? Maybe you're still struggling with the injustice that you've been dealt with by maybe a former spouse, a bad boss, a stingy company, conniving co-workers, or vengeful friends, and you felt your commitment to God suffer because of it. Asap was struggling to be convinced that God is good. You know, when he said, when I tried to understand of all of this, he said it seemed hopeless. Felt life is unfair. Do you feel hopeless today when it seems like life is unfair to you? Well, in verse 17, it says, he said, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood the destiny of the wicked. What Asap experienced is both a reflection and a confession. He's confessing that he has not responded well to seeing the wicked prosper. He's probably struggling with questions like many of us do. If God is just, why does injustice seem to reign? If God is good and loves his people, why do his people suffer? Maybe you're here today and looking at the sickness or your unemployment or marriage problems or financial struggles or maybe the death of a loved one and wonder, where is God? Asap went into the sanctuary of God and something happened. Now, I don't think this verse means that he walked into the door and suddenly a light bulb went off and he's like, oh, I get it. This is the kind of poetic way of saying, I went, I learned about God, I worshipped him, I read his word. And it totally changed his view, his perspective of his circumstance. We all have limited views or perspectives. We usually can't see the big picture. Now the psalmist, in the light of this experience, is going on to affirm God's justice, which he now believes in. Because he says in verse 18 and 19, Indeed, you put them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become desolation. They come to an end, swept by the terrors. Like one walking from a dream, waking from a dream, Lord, when you arise, you will despise their image. The wicked are like a dream after one wakes up. How long does a dream, how long do you have a dream when you wake up? Well, if you're like me, not very long. While in the moment, it may seem that the prosperity of the wicked is endless and there is no end to their wickedness. The psalmist now understands at first, it is short-lived, it's brief, temporary, like a dream. And second, it has an end. Without this understanding, Asap felt bitter and wounded. In verse 21, he says, When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I did not understand. I did not understand. How are you feeling today? When you think of a person that has harmed you or a circumstance of injustice, what feelings do you experience? He says of God in verse 23 to 26, Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up into glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The last part of Psalm 73 is very different from the beginning, if you notice. What was different? Did his circumstances change? Did his health suddenly improve? Did his trial stop? Did he suddenly become wealthy? His circumstances didn't change. His heart changed. He came to know God more fully and had a deeper trust in him. And it changed how he saw the world. 
How you and I see God, the world, and ourselves will greatly affect how we live in the world. The author and speaker, Jen Wilkins, uh, said this, Our hearts cannot love what our minds do not know. It's hard to have a deep trust in God and love for God if we don't know much about God. So it's imperative for us not just to know of God, but to know God. So I want to leave you with four principles from this psalm. The first is, pour your heart out to God. This psalm is a brutally honest confessional from the heart of Asaph to God. He took his doubts and confusions to God in prayer. In Psalm 62, verse 8, it says, Trust in Him, or trust in God at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. You know, God is big enough to take our anger, our pain, our questions. So go ahead, tell Him about it. Don't keep those emotions cooped up inside of you, because by building layers of resentment and hardship uh, between you and God, it only manifests in unhealth. Stored up anger vents itself in headaches and ulcers and bitterness and resentment and outbursts of anger. Unload the pain. God is waiting to talk to you. Psalm 55, 22 says, Leave your troubles with the Lord and He will defend you. He never lets honest people be defeated. Learn to pour out your hearts to God with all of its pain, all of its questions, doubts and fears to Him. The second is, In our sufferings, do not sin. In our suffering, in our affliction, when we look at the trials, the injustice, we must guard ourselves against sin. You know, one of the hardest things for a person to do is not sin when they've been sinned against. You know, there are some actions and responses that are very common for us, myself included, that are not good ways to respond to sin and wickedness. One is we often have a a woe is me or self-pity type of attitude, and neither of that glorify God. Second, we, we can respond to anger against us with anger towards that person. And that can ultimately lead to physical retribution towards someone else, which is also not a good response. Third is we can respond to seeing greed and envy of others with our own form of greed and covetousness. The fourth is we could respond to the hurts against us with bitterness and resentment. We often respond to sin with sin when we feel defrauded. When justice is not quickly executed, we can feel frustrated, hopeless, and think that the only way to resolve something is to respond to evil with more evil. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 8.11, When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. So how do we respond to other sins? To the blatant injustice that no one seems to care about, In our suffering, we must guard ourselves against sin and reacting with sinful attitudes, emotions, and actions. The third thing from this uh, third principle is get the big picture. The big picture is justice will be done. Learn to step back from the details and look at the big picture. Step back from the moment and look at from the perspective of eternity. Start to see things the way God sees them. The psalmist finally found resolution with his own struggle when he understood the final end of the wicked. There is no justice without judgment. Even Paul the Apostle experienced injustice and he writes in 2 Timothy 4.14, he said, Alexander the metal worker did me great harm, but God will pay him back for it. Paul knew at the end of time, God will be the final judge of all things and that he didn't need to take every matter into his own hands. Romans 12, verse 17 to 19 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, saith the Lord. 
From this passage, we read four key principles uh, when we're wronged and how we should respond. First, be patient. Think of God's patience with our own lives and our own mistakes. Second, no revenge. Big or small, don't do it. Third, show love. Think creatively how we can communicate love and grace to others. And fourth, trust God for justice. Vengeance is mine, God says, and he will repay. We don't have to worry about some, that someone's going to get away with something. Scripture consistently points to God as the final fair judge, and we have to trust that he is. That's why Paul writes in Acts 17, verse 31, he says, For he, God, has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man Jesus he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So we should be convinced of the justice of God, that all sin, all wrongdoing, all evil, all injustice will be dealt with. For us to live in a sanitized Western culture where we all enjoy a sense of security and freedom and wealth, the topic of justice and judgment may not be easily felt. As mentioned earlier, we live under, if we lived under an oppressive regime faced with death daily, experiencing the brutal killing of family members or unfair imprisonment, we too would want immediate justice. That's why in Revelation 6 verses 9 to 10, we read about the people who were martyred or basically had their lives cut short and were crying out for vengeance, saying, how long, Lord, will you wait before avenging our debts? Around the world today, millions of people are going through injustice, especially those being in prison, losing their homes, or being killed, and thus leaving their families broken and crying out for justice. So why do good things happen to bad people? Well, God in his mercy continues to show them kindness and goodness, hoping that they will repent and change and follow him. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that the kindness, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I remember hearing this statement many years ago about the topic, about this topic that stuck with me. Because for some people, this life might be the only heaven people will ever experience. And if people refuse God's goodness that leads to repentance, then judgment awaits. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us in, uh, through the things done in our body, whether good or bad. And finally, the last principle, the fourth principle in this psalm to know is renew your relationship with God. Find strength as we have hope in the Lord. When we see the prosperity of the wicked or become frustrated with injustice or suffering, we need to renew our relationship with God. Are we able to say like the psalmist, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you, God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asap had a perspective change. He was envious of the prosperity of the wicked because his heart envied material wealth and success. Revelation caused him to see that he was to value God above everything else. We may not understand why sometimes bad things happen to good people or understand why sometimes good things happen to bad people. But a great truth to keep in mind is this. As Christ followers, we do not live by explanations, but we live by promises. Let me say that again. Christ followers do not live by explanations. We live by promises. And there are three promises that should constantly resonate in our minds and our hearts. First, God is good. Second, God is just and God is fair. The third, God will put everything right in the resurrection, in the new creation. 
You know, in 2014, I had a chance to visit the country of my birth, Sri Lanka, and I was able to visit some memorable places in my childhood. Well, on, my, on our way up to the northern part of the country, we stopped by different orphanages that my own aunt supports. It was heartbreaking to witness the faces of these orphans as they endured consequences of the injustice done to their parents and family. And most of these kids witnessed horrific tragedy during the war, bombing and death and violence. And some of them couldn't even speak because of the shock of what they saw. I felt a lot of sorrow and anger for what happened to these kids. I knew their lives would never be the same again. I also realized that I could have been in their situation if not for the opportunity for me to come to Canada. I'll never know in this life why. Why I had the opportunity and these kids didn't. It just seemed so unfair. I'll share this story as I'm closing this morning. Once a a king called upon all of his wise men and asked them, Is there a mantra or suggestion which works in every situation, in every circumstance, in every place, and in every time, in every joy, in every sorrow, in every defeat, in every victory? And one answer for all questions he asked, something that will help me be wise and emotionally stable when I'm going through good times and bad times, when I experience success or failures, that I will still be content. Well, this mantra should help me when none of you are available to advise me. Tell me, is there anything there? Can you think of something? And then all the wise men were puzzled by the king's question. They thought and thought, and after a lengthy discussion, an old man suggested something which appealed to all of them. They went to the king and gave him something written on paper. And the king opened that paper to find four words. And the four words were, This too shall pass. Now as you've read, this, as you've read and heard this story, just sit silently and evaluate your own life. This too will pass. Think of the moments of joy and victory in your life. Think of the moments of sorrow and defeat. Are they permanent? They all come and pass away. The circumstances in your life, whether good or bad, will pass. Life just passes away. There's nothing permanent in this world. Things change. Think over it from your own perspective. You've seen all the changes and you've survived all setbacks, all defeats, all sorrows. All have passed away. The problems in this present they too will pass away. Because nothing remains forever. Joy and sorrow are both two faces of the same coin, and they both will pass away. Just you, you and I are witnesses of change. We experience it and understand it. We enjoy the present moment, but know that this too shall pass. We have the ultimate confidence in a God that never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our hope is found in the resurrection where God will put all things right. So what is our hope? In Revelation 21 verses 2 to 5 it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death and no more mourning and crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. First, God's dwelling place is coming to earth in new creation. God will renew and restore and recreate. Second, God will wipe out and remove all tears and death and pain, crying and injustice. The old things passed away. The third, God is making everything new. He's already begun that process through the death and resurrection of Jesus and our acceptance of Christ. The process has begun in your life and in this world. 
One of the most frustrating but necessary lessons that we must learn in our Christian walk is this. Life is not fair, but God is good. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, He, God, is the rock. His works are perfect. All of his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. I'd like to quote a portion of one of my favorite poems. Uh, It's a portion of a poem called He Maketh No Mistake. And it says this, My father's ways may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my heart I'm glad to know he never makes a mistake. So when life is unfair, will you trust that God is good, that God is just, and God is fair? Will you look to God today, even when you feel overwhelmed? Will you ask him for wisdom to see things like he does? This morning, let's express our love to God and our trust in his sovereignty, that God is here. And so as we close, I'd like to encourage you, if you feel comfortable, would you pray this prayer with me? And as we pray this prayer together, let's surrender our lives, knowing that, yes, life is unfair, but God is good. And like Asap, coming into the sanctuary, into God's presence, and realizing that God is good. And at the end, justice will be done. Justice will be done. God will accomplish his purposes. So join with me as we pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. You are fair, just, and perfect in all your ways. I surrender my life and trust that you will make all things right one day. Amen.